I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces radio show on Blog Talk Radio's You Are Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and oh my gosh, I am so excited about today's show. I I just, yesterday, everything kind of fell into place, and we are going to have Eric Buderak with us today on the air. Those of you who read ParentingAces.com hopefully have seen the article that I posted that Eric wrote for the UTR website about his experience coming up through junior tennis and dealing with burnout and a loss of passion and how he rekindled that. And it just has seemed to resonate with so many of you as it did for me. And I was just just so excited to have the opportunity to bring Eric on the show today and really get to pick his brain a little deeper about his experiences coming up in tennis Let me give you a little bit of background on him. Um, For those of you not familiar with Eric, who you may not follow professional tennis, and that's fine. Let me just give you a little info, though. He grew up in Minnesota, which, you know, is not the largest breeding ground for junior tennis, but somehow came up through the tennis ranks and was born into a tennis family. His parents were very involved in the game, and So that explains a lot. He is a lefty like me and uh, came up through juniors, ended up going to college. He played a year at Ball State and then transferred to Gustavus Adolphus College. Again, not prime breeding ground for professional tennis. It's a D3 school. But he had incredible success there, winning the NCAA singles and doubles in 2003. And then after he finished, he went right on the pro tour where he has had um, incredible success in especially the doubles arena. He has won 17 titles in his career and has had a career high ranking of 17 in doubles and uh, was ranked in singles as well, though not, not quite as much success on that side of things. And Currently, he is the president of the ATP Players Council, which is a huge job on the professional side of the game, and just most recently um, was playing in the Australian Open last week and playing with fellow American Scott Lipsky, who I've also had the opportunity to meet um, another great, great guy. Uh, Scott and Eric lost in the second round, unfortunately, but went out to the 11 seeds in the three-setter. So, you know, he, he gave a good fight and I'm sure had a great time. I'm, I'm excited to hear about his experience down there. And just to let you all know, he Eric's 34 now. He's married. He is a dad. He's got a two-year-old son who actually... Uh, when we were exchanging messages, he asked me to please remind him to call into the show today because he was on kid duty and uh, might get caught up in fantasy land with his two-year-old. So I'm really happy that he's with us and was able to take a little bit of break from dad duty. Eric, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out. I know you are crazy busy and I just so appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is, um, you know, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So anytime I can talk tennis and especially um, talk specifically um, about tennis parenting, it's um, a great opportunity for me and happy to be here. 
Well, you've had a, quite a unique experience in junior tennis, and and again, for for my listeners who read your piece about your your dealing with your burnout and loss of passion at a relatively early age and relatively relatively early stage in terms of the junior tennis journey. I'd love to hear more about that and, you know, how your parents dealt with it because it's it's tough to say okay as the parent when your kid comes to you and says, eh, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Um, you know, I think it's it's a it's a combination of some things that I felt with as felt as a kid. Um, also, now maybe looking back at them and kind of understanding more what I was really feeling. You know, I think when you're a 12, 13, 14 year old, you just sort of kind of accept what's around you and think that that's normal or that's okay. Um, I knew that I liked playing tennis a lot as a kid. I enjoyed the sport. Um, my dad owned, uh, or my parents actually owned a small tennis club in Rochester, Minnesota. So I was around the game a lot and I really enjoyed playing it. Um, I think once it became a really strong part of my identity when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, especially when you kind of have your first introduction to playing a lot of tournaments and rankings, um, I started to feel a lot of pressure with that. I mean, I would often, you know, leave the court in tears if I lost. I, I would get really stressed out when I felt like other kids were cheating me and, and also felt a sense of pride from, from being one of the best players in the state. Um, but it's not really something that's talked about a whole lot with kids. I think you you, you just sort of assume that's how it has to be. Um, my parents were incredibly supportive of, of my whole junior process. And you know, my mother would drive me all around the state to tournaments. My, my father would you know hit with me whenever, whenever I wanted. Um, but I think I just had a realization when I was maybe 12 years old, I just gotten home from like a zonals tournament in Oklahoma and said, you know, I really don't want to play anymore. I, I don't want to play any tennis. And, and for me, I think that was sort of like, I actually want to quit the game. Um, I think my dad looked at it as, you know, hey, he needs, needs a break. He needs to step away. And, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't think that much of it. I remember talking about it with him just recently over Christmas and said, do you remember when I came to you? And, and he said, yeah, I do. But for me, it was just, you know, you needed a break and you wanted to just come out to the club and hang out with your friends. And that, that's normal for a 12-year-old. So I absolutely wanted to support that. And, um you know, for me, it was really, really impactful to have a father who was a tennis pro who didn't, you know, say, oh, you need to keep playing or you need to work harder. But for someone who was accepting of kind of letting me walk away. But for him, he said it, it seemed really natural that that's how I felt and that, you know, I needed to play some other sports that summer. I didn't want to travel to play national tournaments. Um, probably the, one of the helpful things is that he was a really successful tennis player. And and he also had an upbringing where he just played a lot in the in the parks with his friends growing up and developed a lot later. So so maybe lucky enough for me when I said that I wanted to step away from going to a national tournament schedule at age 12, that was a really comfortable or natural thing for him to hear. Um, so that was kind of my, my, my first real struggle with tennis. Um, and I actually really credit it with a lot of my later junior success because I think I, I stepped away from some of the troublesome years. And I talked to a lot of kids who struggle in the, in the 12s and the 14 and unders. And that is a hard time when you're a teenager and you're dealing with calling your own lines and, you know, going through puberty and just like tough times in your life where, where kids can be mean or, you know, not all that accepting. And, and I actually sort of 
got out of those years and then really came back and got serious about tennis when I was like 15, 16, when you're, when I was a little more mature and a little more comfortable and ready to handle things and, and had a really great experience with tennis from there on. What do you think about the way junior tennis is going in the U.S. right now in terms of this pressure on the young kids with their rankings and playing so many tournaments. I mean, I, I talked to a parent last week, and, and I'm sure he's going to listen to this and, and shoot me an email. So I apologize to you. You know who you are. Um, but he came to me and said, you know, my kid got started late with tennis um, at age seven. That was late. And um, I said, that's not late at all. <laughs> like, I, I you know, I, I mean, somebody has told this family that, that their kid's behind the eight ball starting at age seven. And <laughs> I just find this just so disheartening and sad, really. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, really equipped on how to, to maybe, you know, run the USTA or, or give a whole lot of insight on those things. Um, I do think there are a couple things that I would love to see going forward. Um, and that would be, I think, at the youngest ages, I would love to see the more, more inclusion of team events. I think, um, you know, individual rankings in tennis are going to happen. I mean, I'm part of them with the ATP Tour, and that's, that's just how tennis is. It's an individual sport. But I think putting the individual rankings on young kids is really difficult. I know for me that was a real struggle, always having to watch the ranking go up and down and really be concerned about that at age 12. So whether you eliminate rankings at the youngest ages or have more team events, um, I think it would be really beneficial. Um, Another thing that I would love to see is a little better understanding of where all players are at and then helping facilitate tournaments that are the correct, um, say, ability level for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this this this, turn, this this company, Universal Tennis Rating, did a study, and they looked at the amount of competitive matches, and they gauge a competitive match by the opponent winning um, approximately half the games as the uh, or the the loser winning half the games as the, as the winner, and so a match like six three six three would be deemed competitive. Um, right. The ATP Tour. 70% of the matches are competitive. In college tennis, approximately 70% of the matches are competitive. In junior tennis, however, it's something like only 25% of the matches are competitive. And to me, that becomes like a really like striking issue, especially when you're dealing mm-hmm. with young kids. Because, I mean, I have a two-year-old son now, and if, if he's going to play tennis at age 10, and I drive him two hours to a tournament to play against your son, and your son beats my son 6-0, 6-0, that's not a good experience for anybody. My son feels terrible. I feel like we drove all this way. Your son, you know, blew out a kid and didn't really even know how to handle the experience. You feel like it was a waste of your son's time. And if that's happening 75% of the time, the kids are playing good for our sport. So in talking with my, my friends at UTR, one of the things that excites me most about their product is if, you know, these types of ratings can help facilitate more accurate matches for junior tennis players and have for more kids to have a good experience at a young age, so many of these issues that kids deal with in junior tennis can be eliminated right away. Right. 
Right, and we've talked to the UTR folks a lot on this show. I've written several articles about UTR. I think it's a fantastic product, and and I was skeptical. I, I have to admit, when it first came on the scene, and you know, I was I wasn't really sure how I felt about it. But honestly, having kind of tracked it over the last few years, and seeing even now with high school tennis being included in UTR. That's such a huge benefit to these kids and, you know, a huge incentive for for kids to stay involved at the team level, as you're saying. So, you know, I, I agree with you. And, I mean, having gone through it with my kid, um, I, I there are a lot of things I wish we had done differently. So, um, you know, I I just found your honesty in that article so refreshing and so enlightening. And I think – a lot of the people that have read it have felt the same way, like, oh, my gosh, here's this guy who has found success as a tennis professional, and he was ready to quit the sport at 12 years old. You know, uh-huh. there's – I mean, I don't think we hear that story very often, and I suspect that it's more common than we know. Yeah, I think I, – I, re- I read a study once of a friend of mine who was doing this, like, international tennis study, and I don't, I don't know the name of it, but – he, they, they tracked a lot of professional tennis players. Federer was in the study. This guy was responsible for interviewing. He was a Brazilian guy, and he was responsible for interviewing Gustavo Querton. And what they were tracking is how players make it to professional tennis and kind of like, you know, what are the different phases of their career. And one of the things was like all professional tennis players in the study, I think, picked up the racket before the age of 10. And that was kind of like a barometer that you have to start the sport at a young age. And it's not one of those sports like football where you hear about, oh, this guy never played football. He was a high school basketball player. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone taught him how to play wide receiver and now he's in the NFL, you know, and those kind of Mm -hmm. stories happen somewhat regularly in, you know, a sport like football. In tennis, every professional tennis player that that they found in the study picked up a racket before the age of 10. Now, the next part was, you know, when did they really start taking tennis seriously? And a lot, so many of the kids who didn't do well or struggled in, in this study were kids who took tennis too seriously at a young age, in kind of the pre-puberty ages. And a lot of the kids, and Federer actually kind of fell into this trend as well, is he started tennis very young. He played an average amount of tennis through his early childhood, played multiple sports, and then post-puberty, like in kind of like the 13-, 14-year-old range and, and after, was when he got very into his tennis. And so that was sort of shown that there's two two trends in tennis. You have to start the game early, but just because you start it doesn't mean that you need to play six days a week and two hours every day. You know, you need to just be introduced to the game and kind of learn some of the basic skills. And then when you actually need to take it seriously is more in your early teens or mid-teens. That's when you actually have the ability to develop. I fell into that as well. I mean, whether it was sort of luck or that's how my life, you know, it, was, it certainly wasn't a planned approach. But this article mm-hmm. is showing that those were two trends that they found amongst pro tennis players. Well, it it's, it's also leads into the whole topic of kind of multi-sport play. And I hear right. you know, parents all the time talking about, you know, I don't want my son playing other sports because he needs to focus on tennis. Well, I mean, the people who actually make it to the top of our sport, if we talk about, you know, the Federer's and Dolls, Djokovic, Murray's, I mean, these guys, these guys could literally be professional soccer players. Like, you know, Federer could play professional squash. Like, these guys are, they played so many sports growing up. If you look at the other American tennis players, you know, guys like John Isner played basketball in the high school. Jack Sock, you know, he and I will go to this, you know, 
like um, sports arena in Tokyo and play sports after we go to dinner. And the guy's an unbelievable basketball player. He's, he's hitting baseballs. He's, you know, throwing football. The guy's like the most multi-sport athlete I've ever been around. So, so many of these kids who actually have made it are kids that played multiple sports, you know, all the way through their early childhood years. And I think that's a message, you know, that that keeps getting talked about, thankfully. I mean, I think it's an important message, not just from a burnout standpoint, but also from an injury standpoint. But mm-hmm. But the problem is we parents get talked into pulling our kids out of everything to focus on tennis exclusively at a very young age. This is what, you know, the, the local tennis teaching professionals are pushing. And at some point I suspect there's going to be a change in that culture. And, you know, from I don't know whether it's going to come from, like, someone like you and, and the Players' Council or it's going to come from the NCAA or it's going to come from USTA. I mean, who knows? But... At some point, the tennis teaching industry has got to embrace this approach too, right? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that, but parents also have to be smart enough to be aware that, like, that's where the tennis industry makes their money. You know, when you're talking to a tennis pro, it's in their best interest to have your son or daughter playing, you know, six or seven days a week and year round because that's where they make their money. Um, I think as the parent of the athlete, or even when they get older, the athlete themselves, you know, they have to, you know, make their own decisions and understand, you know, what's in their best interest. Um, we had a player from my hometown, this girl, her name is Jessie Aney. She was um really good high school player. She's now on a scholarship at University of North Carolina. Um, and when she was 12 years old, she was the Sports Illustrated Kid of the Year. She was one of the best, best tennis players in the country, and she was also the best hockey player in the state of Minnesota. And I would talk to USTA coaches and they kept saying to me, you know, oh, she has to quit hockey because she needs to focus on her tennis. And, you know, I would talk to her dad and, you know, relay this information and what I was hearing. And he's like, yeah, every hockey coach is telling me the exact same thing. She's got to quit tennis <laughs> you know, and she's got to focus on her hockey. And and lucky right. enough for her, I think she was she was strong willed enough and, and, and her parents probably led her as well that, you know, she was able to maintain both these sports all the way through her high school career, which you're the best hockey player in the state of Minnesota, which is a pretty big deal. And also, you know, enough to get a full ride to one of the best tennis programs in the country. I mean, it shows how good she was at both sports. Um, and she was able to play both those for a long time. You know, now at as a freshman in college, she's focusing only on tennis. So, so she made her choice mm-hmm. very late. But I think she's also hungry and healthy and, and ready to really put the pedal to the floor now at 18 years old and really get into her tennis. And I think... I mean, she could have amazing success going forward. And she feels probably as young as anyone in tennis years because she has had that balance her whole life. And now she's really ready to go for it. Um, I know that's how I felt on tour when I first got onto the ATP tour, like, you know, 24, 25 years old. I was so happy to be out there. This was such an amazing life for me. And I was, you know, talking to kids who'd been traveling a professional or other players who'd been traveling a professional lifestyle since they were, 13, 14 years old, you know, traveling internationally, right. playing junior grand slams. And at 25, they, you know, they felt tired and they felt like they'd already seen the world and experienced all these tournaments where I was, you know, I was just ready to hit the ground running. Right. So interesting. So interesting. I, 
I would love to to chat a little bit about your college tennis experience too, because everything about your pathway is really non traditional. I mean, it's it's different from what we hear day to day about how to develop a tennis player. What I mean, how did you wind up at Ball State? How did you end up transferring and you know, choosing D3 over D1. I mean, here you are, the top player in your area. What guided those decisions for you? Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a long story, and it's it's kind of like my, my junior story in that I was going through the process, and I don't even know that I really understood it all until it was finished. Um, I, I, I went to Ball State because I really wanted to play in the Division One program. Um, I was not recruited by anyone, really. Um, you know, I had trouble getting, you know, Big Ten coaches to even call me back. Um, but eventually the Ball State coach was willing to take a chance on me and let me walk onto the team. And I I somewhat earned a spot on the roster. I played my freshman year playing five, six, seven, kind of, you know, one of those players who would play most of the matches but occasionally get, you know, benched here or there when I was, you know, you know on a bit of a losing streak or whatever. Um, so I returned my sophomore year and, was probably going to fit into a similar role and I could feel that I was probably going to be number six or so, um, you know, that, that season and realized that, you know, even though what I was seeking, which was the ability to earn a spot on a, you know, a good division one program, play with great players, um, all the things that I thought going in, you know, I'll start out at number 10 and work my way up to number six, which is essentially what I did. Um, even though I'd achieved that, it wasn't, I wasn't really enjoying the process. There was a there was a match specifically. I remember, and I had lost a, a number of matches in a row. I think the coach had moved me from five to six, uh, maybe in hopes of you know helping me get a few more wins. And I was struggling again. I was down like a set and a break. And I knew my parents were coming down the next weekend because we were going to play Notre Dame. And so I really wanted to be in the lineup when they were coming down. And I was losing this match. I think we were playing Louisville. And I was looking around. I was just think, looking at the number five guy and looking at the number seven guy and just thinking, man, I hope these guys lose. Because I was so worried about my spot in the, on, on, in the roster. And I think it was, it was a, a lot about player, my – <laughs> yeah, but but that's where you you know you have these emotions. And it's, it's it's hard no, for you to talk about them. And and right. the, the coach at Ball State was great. He was an, he had an unbelievable <laughs> team environment. He 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 runs a wonderful program. And I think I mean I end up leaving I think purely because I couldn't handle the the you know day in day out feeling of am I in the lineup or am I not and. When I would have even, you know, a, a baseline game to seven against someone, I felt like, you know, my roster spot was on the line. And I think if I had maybe been able to talk to him about that or talk to someone about that or someone maybe had asked me about that, it, it might have helped. But it was one of those things that, you know, looking back on it, it's pretty easy to see clearly how much that bothered me. But at the time, right. I, don't, I, was, I was just in it. And I don't know that I was ready to talk about it or I even realized it. Um, I just knew that I wasn't enjoying it. I was really uncomfortable all the time. And so I wanted to make a change. And, and that's what led me to go to Gustavus. And it was a program where I had a previous relationship with the coach, um, this guy, Steve Wilkinson, who had been there for like 25 years. He actually coached my dad. My dad went through his program and wow. was like his first recruit. Um, so I'd known Steve since I was born. 
and and I really liked him. And I was excited to go to Gustavus all along. Um, but that at the end, of, you know, when it came to making a decision, I really wanted to try Division One tennis and ended up choosing Ball State over Gustavus. But I think after a year and a half, I realized that, you know, Steve was a guy that I really wanted to play for. It was a program that, you know, maybe would be a better fit for me. And mm-hmm. it just the, the whole overall experience of Ball State wasn't quite working out for me. And it was at no fault of the programs. I mean, the guys on the team are some of my really good friends today. The coach is phenomenal. It's a, it's a wonderful program. It just wasn't the right fit for me, um, mm-hmm. which is when I, when I speak often to a lot of college kids. I do these college showcases, and I talk to kids, and I just try to make it clear. You know, so many kids say, I want to, I just want to go to the best program that I can get into. I just want to try to earn my spot on the team. I want to start out low and, you know, play with all these great players. And I just share my story because – I had that, and I was, in many people's eyes, succeeding in that environment. But at the end of the day, it it, it wasn't right for me. I, it's it's your timing is impeccable with this. I mean, the college tennis season is just getting underway, and you know, for for the kids that are juniors and seniors in high school, um, you know, the seniors obviously are either just signing or getting ready to sign somewhere. The juniors are heavy into recruiting and. And I think this is such an important message to get out because let's be honest, most junior players, the end of their tennis road is going to be college tennis, not the professional tour. And, you know, I I want you to talk about making that transition, but but for the majority of kids and the vast majority of kids, college tennis is going to be the end of their competitive life in tennis and making the right decisions you know, for yourself and and for your future, um, it can be very challenging. And you know, it's college coaches are really good at their job. A lot of them, you know, they're especially the recruiting side. They they know how to sell their program. And um, a lot of times, the reality of the program, as you found, is is different. It's not any fault of the program. It's just as a kid, you don't know what you want. You're young. You're mm-hmm. inexperienced. And it's easy to choose poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were, don't yeah, you feel lucky I, I mean, that I, you were I, able to get out? Well, sure, now. I mean, if I look back, you know, I, I mean, all these things probably had to fall in a certain order for me to be where I am today. So, yeah, of course, I feel um, lucky to think that I made that decision. It was At the time, it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. I mean, I was having, like, sleepless nights before I actually – you know, decided to go and, and, and pull the trigger and, and leave school. Um, but, you know, speaking to the, to, to those kids, I tell them all the time as well, like along, like dealing with the tennis coach, you know, uh, college coaches are, it's in their best interest to get as many good kids as possible to their school, you know? And yeah, I think they do care a lot about the, you know, the development of juniors and they want to make the right fit for every kid, but, if I'm the coach of a school, I'm going to go out and try to get as many good players as I can get to come to whatever school it is that I'm coaching at. And mm-hmm. you know, the, one of them, I mean, not to go back to UTR too many times, but they, one of the cool things about that is that you can actually look up your own number and then you can look up every team by, by UTRs and you can see where you would fit in, you know, on the same ranking scale with these kids. And I think right. – you know, if all the, if all these kids on a certain team, program X, are, you know, 11s and 12s, and your your son or daughter is a nine, 
well, they may not have a very good experience, even though their coach is still trying to recruit that kid to come to their school. So mm-hmm. some of the responsibility comes on the parent or on the the, the player. And you know, I, when I speak to kids too, I say, hey, you know, when you're choosing a college, this is sort of your first adult decision of your life. You know, I know you're only you know 16 or 17 when you need to make it, but this is this is your first huge decision. I mean, for me, it was sort of two decisions. It was picking a school and then stepping up and saying, you know, this, this isn't the right fit and I need to make a change. Um, but a lot of that responsibility comes on the kid and they need to try to look into those numbers and look into those feelings and look into those programs and decide what it is that they want. I mean, for me, one of the things I said when I left Ball State was that I want to go to Gustavus because I don't want to play pro tennis. You know, I don't, I'm not going to be a pro tennis player. So I want to go to a school where I'm going to be happy. And I'm going to have fun and I'm going to play number one or two on the team. And I'm not going to be stressed at practice and I can just have a great time and have a great tennis experience. That was like one of the main reasons I made the switch. But, you know, as it turns oh, out, interesting. And, you know, <laughs> but, but that, you know, as a sophomore in college at playing number six at the number 50 ranked college in division one, Pro tennis is not on your radar, so right. so it wasn't you know it wasn't until a few years down the road that that was even you know a possibility. But even John Isner says that you know he says when he went to Georgia that he had no aspirations of playing professional tennis, and you know so things change. I mean, you know, especially for boys, I think there's so much physical and emotional maturation that happens in college. And you just don't know where life is going to take you. And so to leave your options open, you know, I think is is a great choice. And, I mean, for you, obviously staying happy with your school and happy with your tennis was a driving force. Yeah, I mean, I think we we, we look at the average age of a top 100 tennis player nowadays, and it's 28 years old. Um, average age of a top 100 doubles player is, I think, is something around 30. So if we're talking about your peak tennis age as a male being 29 years old, like the, you know, the, the idea that you're thinking pro tennis or not at age 15, 16, 17, or even 21 is, is actually a little bit crazy. Um, mm-hmm. I had a long chat with Martin Blackman, the, the new USTA player development director in, in the, in the, at the Australian Open, and we were talking about just different pathways for kids to make it into pro tennis. And, you know, I said that we need to start addressing the gap that is what do kids do when they leave school at 22? Because there's still so much more development for them to be doing if they want to play pro tennis for them to reach their peak age, which is still, you know, five years down the road. How can we help, you know, keep them surviving, making enough money, playing the right tournaments without, you know, quitting, quitting the game when their, their peak age is still, quite a long ways away. So um, absolutely. I mean, talking to a guy like John, I know he's a similar situation to me where it was, we both went to college with no aspirations of playing pro tennis. And all of a sudden you just keep getting better and better. And, and then, you know, new opportunities present themselves. I mean, I don't think now he's knocking on the door as like a top 10 player for, for maybe a long time to stay. I mean, he's doing uh, doing an absolutely wonderful job out there. Yeah, yeah. And well, so let's talk about this decision to play college tennis versus turning pro. That 
um, a lot of our young players face. I think, you know, there's there's this big demon hanging around about, you know, U.S. tennis and how we haven't had players at the top of the game and we've got to get our players back in the second week of the U.S. Open and yada, yada, yada. And mm-hmm. we had a, a pretty big group that made a decision to turn pro in lieu of college this past year. And they're having some success out there. I mean, like you said, you know, they're 18, 19 years old. Um, Physically, they're not there yet. Emotionally, they're not there yet. They have a lot of developing to do. Is college still a viable place to do that developing or is getting out on the tour and, and, you know, having the -the on-the-job training what, what's your feeling on that? Um, I mean, again, like like a lot of the stuff I talk about, there's there's no right answer. And you know, when I talk, I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Good morning, and welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio's You Are Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and oh my gosh, I am so excited about today's show. I I just yesterday everything kind of fell into place and we are going to have Eric Buderak with us today on the air. Those of you who read parentingaces.com hopefully have seen the article that I posted that Eric wrote for the UTR website about his experience coming up through junior tennis and dealing with burnout and a loss of passion and how he rekindled that and it just has seemed to resonate with so many of you as it did for me. And I was just just so excited to have the opportunity to bring Eric on the show today and really get to pick his brain a little deeper about his experiences coming up in tennis. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. Um, for those of you not familiar with Eric, who you may not follow professional tennis, and that's Fine. Let me just give you a little info, though. He grew up in Minnesota, which, you know, is not the largest breeding ground for junior tennis, but somehow came up through the tennis ranks and was born into a tennis family. His parents were very involved in the game, and so that explains a lot. He is a lefty like me and uh, came up through juniors, ended up going to college. He played a year at Ball State and then transferred to Gustavus Adolphus College. Again, not prime breeding ground for professional tennis. It's a D3 school, but he had incredible success there, winning the NCAA singles and doubles in 2003. And then after he finished, he went right on the pro tour where he has had um, incredible success in especially the doubles arena. He has won 17 titles in his career and has had a career high ranking of 17 in doubles. And uh, he was ranked in singles as well, though not not quite as much success on that side of things. And currently, he is the president of the ATP Players Council, which is a huge job on the professor professional side of the game, and I just most recently um, was playing in the Australian Open last week and playing with fellow American Scott Lipsky, who I've also had the opportunity to meet um, another great, great guy, 
uh, Scott and Eric lost in the second round, unfortunately, but went out to the 11 seeds in the three-setter. So, you know, he, he gave a good fight and I'm sure had a great time. I'm, I'm excited to hear about his experience down there. And just to let you all know, he Eric's 34 now. He's married. He is a dad. He's got a two-year-old son who actually – uh, when we were exchanging messages, he asked me to please remind him to call into the show today because he was on kid duty and uh, might get caught up in fantasy land with his two-year-old. So I'm really happy that he's with us and was able to take a little bit of break from dad duty. Eric, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out. I know you are crazy busy, and I just so appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is, um, you know, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So anytime I can talk tennis and especially um, talk specifically um, about tennis parenting, it's um, a great opportunity for me and happy to be here. Well, you've had a, quite a unique experience in junior tennis. And, and again, for, for my listeners who read your piece about your your dealing with your burnout and loss of passion at a relatively early age and relative, relatively early stage in terms of the junior tennis journey. I'd love to hear more about that and, you know, how your parents dealt with it because it's, it's tough to say okay as the parent when your kid comes to you and says, eh, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a combination of some things that I felt with as felt as a kid. Um, also now maybe looking back at them and kind of understanding more what I was really feeling. You know, I think when you're a 12, 13, 14 year old, you just sort of kind of accept what's around you and think that that's normal or that's okay. Um, I knew that I liked playing tennis a lot as a kid. I enjoyed the sport. Um, my dad owned, uh, or my parents actually owned a small tennis club in Rochester, Minnesota. So I was around the game a lot and I really enjoyed playing it. Um, I think once it became a really strong part of my identity when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, especially when you kind of have your first introduction to playing a lot of tournaments and rankings, um, I started to feel a lot of pressure with that. I mean, I would often, you know, leave the court in tears if I lost. I, I would get really stressed out when I felt like other kids were cheating me and, and also felt a sense of pride from, from being one of the best players in the state. Um, but it's not really something that's talked about a whole lot with kids. I think you you, you just sort of assume that's how it has to be. Um, my parents were incredibly supportive of, of my whole junior process and you know, my mother would drive me all around the state to tournaments. My, my father would, you know, hit with me whenever, whenever I wanted. Um, but I think I just had a realization when I was maybe 12 years old. I'd just gotten home from like a zonals tournament in Oklahoma and said, you know, I really don't want to play anymore. I, I don't want to play any tennis. And and for me, I think that was sort of like I actually want to quit the game. Um, I think my dad looked at it as, you know, hey, he needs needs a break. He needs to step away. And you know he. He didn't. He didn't think that much of it. I remember talking about it with him just recently over Christmas, and said, "Do you remember when I came to you?" And, and he said, "Yeah, I do." But for me, it was just you know, you needed a break, and you wanted to just come out to the club and hang out with your friends, and that that's normal for a twelve-year-old. So I absolutely wanted to support that. And, um, you know, for me, it was really really impactful to have a father who was a tennis pro who didn't you know say, oh, you need to keep playing or you need to work harder, but for someone who was accepting of kind of letting me walk away. But 
for him, he said it, it seemed really natural that that's how I felt and that, you know, I needed to play some other sports that summer. I didn't want to travel to play national tournaments. Um, probably the, one of the helpful things is that he was a really successful tennis player and, and he also had an upbringing where he just played a lot in the, in the parks with his friends growing up and developed a lot later. So, so maybe lucky enough for me, when I said that I wanted to step away from going to a national tournament schedule at age 12, that was a really comfortable or natural thing for him to hear. Um, so that was kind of my, my, my first real struggle with tennis. Um, and I actually really credit it with a lot of my later junior success because I think I, I stepped away from some of the troublesome years. I and mean, I talked to a lot of kids who struggle in the, in the 12s and the 14 and unders. And that is a hard time when you're a teenager and you're dealing with calling your own lines and, you know, going through puberty and just like tough times in your life where, where kids can be mean or, you know, not all that accepting. And, and I actually sort of got out of those years and then really came back and got serious about tennis when I was like 15, 16, when you're, when I was a little more mature and a little more comfortable and ready to handle things and had a really great experience with tennis from there on. What do you think about the way junior tennis is going in the U.S. right now in terms of this pressure on the young kids with their rankings and playing so many tournaments? I mean, I I talked to a parent last week, and and I'm sure he's going to listen to this and and shoot me an email. (laughs) So I apologize to you. You know who you are. Um, But he came to me and said, you know, my kid got started late with tennis um, at age seven. That was late. And um, I said, that's not late at all. (laughs) Like, I, I, you know, I, I mean, somebody has told this family that, that their kid's behind the eight ball starting at age seven. And I just find this just so disheartening and sad, really. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, really equipped on how to, to maybe, you know, run the USTA or, or give a whole lot of insight on those things. Um, I do think there are a couple things that I would love to see going forward. Um, and that would be, I think, at the youngest ages, I would love to see the more, more inclusion of team events. I think, um, you know, individual rankings in tennis are, are going to happen. I mean, I'm part of them with the ATP Tour, and that's, that's just how tennis is. It's an individual sport. But I think putting the individual rankings on young kids is really difficult. I know for me that was a real struggle, always having to watch the ranking go up and down and really be concerned about that at age 12. So whether you eliminate rankings at the youngest ages or have more team events, um, I think it would be really beneficial. Um, Another thing that I would love to see is a little better understanding of where all players are at and then helping facilitate tournaments that are the correct, um, say, ability level for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this this this, turn, this this company, Universal Tennis Rating, did a study, and they looked at the amount of competitive matches, and they gauge a competitive match by the opponent winning um, approximately half the games as the uh, or the the loser winning half the games as the, as the winner, and so a match like six three six three would be deemed competitive. Um, right. The ATP Tour. 70% of the matches are competitive. In college tennis, approximately 70% of the matches are competitive. In junior tennis, however, it's something like only 25% of the matches are competitive. 
And to me, that becomes like a really like striking issue, especially when you're dealing mm-hmm. with young kids. Because, I mean, I have a two-year-old son now, and if, if he's going to play tennis at age 10, and I drive him two hours to a tournament to play against your son, and your son beats my son 6-0, 6-0, that's not a good experience for anybody. My son feels terrible. Right. I feel like we drove all this way. Your son, you know, blew out a kid and didn't really even know how to handle the experience. You feel like it was a waste of your son's time. And if that's happening 75% of the time, the kids are playing good for our sport. So, right. In talking with my, my friends at UTR, one of the things that excites me most about their product is if, you know, these types of ratings can help facilitate more accurate matches for junior tennis players and have for more kids to have a good experience at a young age. So many of these issues that kids deal with in junior tennis can be eliminated right away. Right. Right, and we've talked to the UTR folks a lot on this show. I've written several articles about UTR. I think it's a fantastic product, and and I was skeptical, I I have to admit, when it first came on the scene, and, you know, I I wasn't really sure how I felt about it, but honestly, having kind of tracked it over the last few years and seeing even now with high school tennis being included in UTR, that's such a huge benefit to these kids and, you know, a huge incentive for for kids to stay involved at the team level, as you're saying. So, you know, I, I agree with you. And, I mean, having gone through it with my kid, um, I, I there are a lot of things I wish we had done differently. So, um, you know, I I just found your honesty in that article so refreshing and so enlightening. And I think – a lot of the people that have read it have felt the same way, like, oh, my gosh, here's this guy who has found success as a tennis professional, and he was ready to quit the sport at 12 years old. You know, uh-huh. there's – I mean, I don't think we hear that story very often, and I suspect that it's more common than we know. Yeah, I think I, – I, re- I read a study once of a friend of mine who was doing this, like, international tennis study. and I don't, I don't know the name of it, but – he, they, they tracked a lot of professional tennis players. Federer was in the study. This guy was responsible for interviewing. He was a Brazilian guy, and he was responsible for interviewing Gustavo Querton. And what they were tracking is how players make it to professional tennis and kind of like, you know, what are the different phases of their career. And one of the things was like all professional tennis players in the study, I think, picked up the racket before the age of 10. And that was kind of like a barometer that you have to start the sport at a young age. And it's not one of those sports like football where you hear about, oh, this guy never played football. He was a high school basketball player. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone taught him how to play wide receiver and now he's in the NFL, you know, and those kind of Mm -hmm. stories happen somewhat regularly in, you know, a sport like football. In tennis, every professional tennis player that they they found in the study picked up a racket before the age of 10. Now, the next part was, you know, when did they really start taking tennis seriously? And a lot, so many of the kids who didn't do well or struggled in, in this study were kids who took tennis too seriously at a young age, in kind of the pre-puberty ages. And a lot of the kids, and Federer actually kind of fell into this trend as well, is he started tennis very young. He played an average amount of tennis through his early childhood, played multiple sports, and then post-puberty, like in kind of like the 13, 14-year-old range and, and after, was when he got very into his tennis. And so that was sort of shown that there's two two trends in tennis. You have to start the game early, but just because you start it doesn't mean that you need to play six days a week and two hours every day. 
you know, you need to just be introduced to the game and kind of learn some of the basic skills. And then when you actually need to take it seriously is more in your early teens or mid teens. That's when you actually have the ability to develop. I fell into that as well. I mean, whether it was sort of luck or that's how my life, you know, it was, it certainly wasn't a planned approach, but this article mm-hmm. was showing that those were two trends that they found amongst pro tennis players. Well, it, it's, it's also leads into the whole topic of kind of multi-sport play. And I hear, right. you know, parents all the time talking about, you know, I don't want my son playing other sports because he needs to focus on tennis. Well, I mean, the people who actually make it to the top of our sport, if we talk about, you know, the Federer's and Dolls, Djokovic, Murray's, I mean, these guys, these guys could literally be professional soccer players. Like, you know, Federer could play professional squash. Like these guys are, they played so many sports growing up. If you look at the other American tennis players, you know, guys like John Isner played basketball in the high school. Jack Sock, you know, he and I will go to this, you know, like um, sports arena in Tokyo and play sports after we go to dinner. And the guy's an unbelievable basketball player. He's, he's hitting baseballs. He's, you know, throwing football. The guy's like the most multi-sport athlete I've ever been around. So, so many of these kids who actually have made it are kids that played multiple sports, you know, all the way through their early childhood years. And I think that's a message, you know, that that keeps getting talked about, thankfully. I mean, I think it's an important message, not just from a burnout standpoint, but also from an injury standpoint. But mm-hmm. but the problem is we parents get talked into pulling our kids out of everything to focus on tennis exclusively at a very young age. This is what, you know, the, the local tennis teaching professionals are pushing and at some point, I suspect there's going to be a change in that culture. And, you know, from I don't know whether it's going to come from, like, someone like you and, and the Players' Council or it's going to come from the NCAA or it's going to come from USTA. I mean, who knows? But at some point, the tennis teaching industry has got to embrace this approach too, right? I hope so. I mean, I think that, but parents also have to be smart enough to be aware that like, that's where the tennis industry makes their money. You know, when you're talking to a tennis pro, it's in their best interest to to have your son or daughter playing, you know, six or seven days a week and year round because that's where they make their money. Um, I think as the parent of the athlete, or even when they get older, the athlete themselves, you know, they have to, you know, make their own decisions and understand, you know, what's in their best interest. Um, we had a player from my hometown, this girl, her name is Jessie Aney. She was um really good high school player. She's now on a scholarship at University of North Carolina. Um, and when she was 12 years old, she was the Sports Illustrated Kid of the Year. She was one of the best, best tennis players in the country, and she was also the best hockey player in the state of Minnesota. And I would talk to USTA coaches, and they kept saying to me, you know, oh, she has to quit hockey because – she needs to focus on her tennis. And, you know, I would talk to her dad and, you know, relay this information that, and what I was hearing. And he's like, yeah, every hockey coach is telling me the exact same thing. She's got to quit tennis <laughs> you know, and she's got to focus on her hockey. And, and lucky right. enough for her, I think she was, she was strong-willed enough and, and, and her parents probably led her as well that, you know, she was able to maintain both these sports all the way through her high school career, which you're the best hockey player in the state of Minnesota, which is a pretty big deal. And also, you know, enough to get a full ride to one of the best tennis programs in the country. I mean, it shows how good she was at both sports. Um, and she was able to play both those for a long time. You know, now at as a freshman in college, she's focusing only on tennis. So, so she made her choice mm-hmm. very late. 
but I think she's also hungry and healthy and, and ready to really put the pedal to the floor now at 18 years old and really get into her tennis. And I think, I mean, she could have amazing success going forward. And she feels probably as young as anyone in tennis years because she has had that balance her whole life. And now she's really ready to go for it. Um, I know that's how I felt on tour when I first got onto the ATP tour, like, you know, 24, 25 years old. I was so happy to be out there. This was such an amazing life for me. And I was, you know, talking to kids who'd been traveling a professional or other players who'd been traveling a professional lifestyle since they were 13, 14 years old, you know, traveling internationally, right. playing junior grand slams. And at 25, they, you know, they felt tired and they felt like they'd already seen the world and experienced all these tournaments where I was, you know, I was just ready to hit the ground running. Right. So interesting. So interesting. I I would love to to chat a little bit about your college tennis experience too, because everything about your pathway is really non-traditional. I mean, it's it's different from what we hear day to day about how to develop a tennis player. What I mean, how did you wind up at Ball State? How did you end up transferring and? you know, choosing D3 over D1. I mean, here you are, the top player in your area. What guided those decisions for you? Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a long story, and it's it's kind of like my, my junior story in that I was going through the process, and I don't even know that I really understood it all until it was finished. Um, I, I, I went to Ball State because I really wanted to play in a Division One program. Um, I was not recruited by anyone, really. Um, you know, I had trouble getting, you know, Big Ten coaches to even call me back. Um, but eventually the Ball State coach was willing to take a chance on me and let me walk onto the team. And I I somewhat earned a spot on the roster. I played my freshman year playing five, six, seven, kind of, you know, one of those players who would play most of the matches, but occasionally get, you know, benched here or there when I was, you know, you know on a bit of a losing streak or whatever. Um, so I returned my sophomore year and was probably going to fit into a similar role and I could feel that I was probably going to be number six or so, um, you know, that, that season and realized that, you know, even though what I was seeking, which was the ability to earn a spot on a, you know, a good division one program, play with great players, um, all the things I thought going in, you know, I'll start out at number 10 and work my way up to number six, which is essentially what I did. Um, even though I had achieved that, it wasn't, I wasn't really enjoying the process. There was a there was a match specifically, I remember, and I had lost a, a number of matches in a row. I think the coach had moved me from five to six, uh, maybe in hopes of you know helping me get a few more wins. And I was struggling again. I was down like a set and a break. And I knew my parents were coming down the next weekend because we were going to play Notre Dame. And so I really wanted to be in the lineup when they were coming down. And I was losing this match. I think we were playing Louisville. And I was looking around. I was just think, looking at the number five guy and looking at the number seven guy and just thinking, man, I hope these guys lose. Because I was so worried about my spot in the, on, on, in the roster. And I think it was, it was a, a lot about player, my... Eric. Yeah, but but that's where you you know you have these emotions. And it's, it's it's hard no, for you to talk about them. And and right. the, the coach at Ball State was great. He was an, he had an unbelievable <laughs> team environment. He 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 runs a wonderful program. And I think I mean I end up leaving I think purely because I couldn't handle the the you know day in day out feeling of am I in the lineup or am I not? And 
when I would have even, you know, a, a baseline game to seven against someone, I felt like, you know, my roster spot was on the line. And I think if I had maybe been able to talk to him about that or talk to someone about that or someone maybe had asked me about that, it, it might have helped. But it was one of those things that, you know, looking back on it, it's pretty easy to see clearly how much that bothered me. But at the time, right. I, don't, I, was, I was just in it, and I don't know that I was ready to talk about it or I even realized it. Um, I just knew that I wasn't enjoying it. I was really uncomfortable all the time. And so I wanted to make a change. And, and that's what led me to go to Gustavus. And it was a program where I had a previous relationship with the coach, um, this guy, Steve Wilkinson, who had been there for like 25 years. He actually coached my dad. My dad went through his program and was wow. like his first recruit. Um, so I'd known Steve since I was born. And, and I really liked him. And I was excited to go to Gustavus all along. Um, but that at the end of, you know, when it came to making a decision, I really wanted to try division one tennis and ended up choosing ball state over Gustavus. But I think after a year and a half, I realized that, you know, Steve was a guy that I really wanted to play for. It was a program that, you know, maybe would be a better fit for me. And Mm -hmm. it just, the, the whole overall experience of ball state wasn't quite working out for me. And it was at no fault of the programs. I mean, the guys on the team are some of my really good friends today. The coach is phenomenal. It's a, it's a wonderful program. It just wasn't the right fit for me, um, mm-hmm. which is when I, when I speak often to a lot of college kids. I do these college showcases, and I talk to kids, and I just try to make it clear. You know, so many kids say, I, wanna, I just want to go to the best program that I can get into. I just want to try to earn my spot on the team. I want to start out low and, you know, play with all these great players. And I just share my story because – I had that, and I was, in many people's eyes, succeeding in that environment. But at the end of the day, it it, it wasn't right for me. It's it's your timing is impeccable with this. I mean, the college tennis season's just getting underway, and you know, for for the kids that are juniors and seniors in high school, um, you know, the seniors obviously are either just signing or getting ready to sign somewhere. The juniors are heavy into recruiting and. And I think this is such an important message to get out because let's be honest, most junior players, the end of their tennis road is going to be college tennis, not the professional tour. And, you know, I I want you to talk about making that transition, but but for the majority of kids and the vast majority of kids, college tennis is going to be the end of their competitive life in tennis and making the right decisions you know, for yourself and, and for your future, um, it can be very challenging. And, you know, it's college coaches are really good at their job, a lot of them, you know, they're especially the recruiting side. They they know how to sell their program. And um, a lot of times the reality of the program, as you found, is, is different. It's not any fault of the program. It's just as a kid, you don't know what you want. You're young. You're mm-hmm. inexperienced. And, it's easy to choose poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were, don't yeah, you feel lucky I, I mean, that I, you were I, able to get out? Well, sure, now. I mean, if I look back, you know, I mean, all these things probably had to fall in a certain order for me to be where I am today. So, yeah, of course, I feel um, lucky to think that I made that decision. It was At the time, it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. I mean, I was having, like, sleepless nights before I actually – you know, decided to go and, and, and pull the trigger and, and leave school. Um, but, you know, speaking to the, to, to those kids, 
I tell them all the time as well, like along like dealing with the tennis coach, you know, uh, college coaches are, it's in their best interest to get as many good kids as possible to their school, you know? And yeah, I think they do care a lot about the, you know, the development of juniors and they want to make the right fit for every kid. But if I'm the coach of a school, I'm going to go out and try to get as many good players as I can get to come to whatever school it is that I'm coaching at. And mm-hmm. you know, the, one of them, I mean, not to go back to UTR too many times, but they, one of the cool things about that is that you can actually look up your own number and then you can look up every team by, by UTRs and you can see where you would fit in, you know, on the same ranking scale with these kids. And I think, right. you know, if all the, if all these kids on a certain team program X are, you know, 11s and 12s and your, your son or daughter is a nine, well, they may not have a very good experience, even though their coach is still trying to recruit that kid to come to their school. So, mm-hmm some of the responsibility comes on the parent or on the, the, the player. And, you know, I, when I speak to kids too, I say, Hey, you know, when you're choosing a college, this is sort of your first adult decision of your life. You know, I know you're only, you know, 16 or 17 when you need to make it, but this is, this is your first huge decision. I mean, for me, it was sort of two decisions. It was picking a school and then stepping up and saying, you know, this, this isn't the right fit and I need to make a change. Um, but a lot of that responsibility comes on the kid and they need to try to look into those numbers and look into those feelings and look into those programs and decide what it is that they want. I mean, for me, one of the things I said when I left Ball State was that I want to go to Gustavus because I don't want to play pro tennis. You know, I don't, I'm not going to be a pro tennis player. So I want to go to a school where I'm going to be happy. and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to play number one or two on the team and I'm not going to be stressed at practice and I can just, have a great time and have a great tennis experience. That was like one of the main reasons I made the switch. But, you know, as it turns oh, out, interesting. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that, you know, as a sophomore in college at playing number six at the number 50 ranked college in division one, pro tennis is not on your radar. So, right. so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until a few years down the road that that was even, you know, a possibility. But even John Isner says that, you know, he says when he went to Georgia that he had no aspirations of playing professional tennis. And, you know, so things change. I mean, you know, especially for boys, I think there's so much physical and emotional maturation that happens in college. And you just don't know where life is going to take you. And so to leave your options open, you know, I think is – is a great choice. And I mean, for you, obviously staying happy with your school and happy with your tennis was a driving force. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we, we look at the average age of a top hundred tennis player nowadays and it's 28 years old. Um, Average age of a top hundred doubles player is I think it's something around 30. So if we're talking about your peak tennis age as a male being 29 years old, like, yeah, you know, the, the idea that you're thinking pro tennis or not at age 15, 16, 17, or even 21 is, is actually a little bit crazy. Um, mm-hmm. I had a long chat with Martin Blackman, the, the new USTA player development director in, in the, in the, at the Australian Open. And we were talking about just different pathways for kids to make it into pro tennis. And, you know, I said that we need to start addressing the gap that is what do kids do when they leave school at 22? 
because there's still so much more development for them to be doing if they want to play pro tennis for them to reach their peak age, which is still, you know, five years down the road. How can we help, you know, keep them surviving, making enough money, playing the right tournaments without, you know, quitting, quitting the game when their, their peak age is still quite a long ways away. So um, absolutely. And talking to a guy like John, I know he's a similar situation to me where, it was we both went to college with no aspirations of playing pro tennis and all of a sudden you just keep getting better and better and and then you know new opportunities present themselves i mean i don't think now he's knocking on the door as like a top 10 player for for maybe a long time to stay i mean he's doing uh doing an absolutely wonderful job out there yeah yeah and well so let's talk about this decision to play college tennis versus turning pro that um, a lot of our young players face. I think, you know, there's there's this big demon hanging around about, you know, U.S. tennis and how we haven't had players at the top of the game and we've got to get our players back in the second week of the U.S. Open and yada, yada, yada. And mm-hmm. we had a, a pretty big group that – made a decision to turn pro in lieu of college this past year. And they're having some success out there. I mean, like you said, you know, they're 18, 19 years old. Um, Physically, they're not there yet. Emotionally, they're not there yet. They have a lot of developing to do. Is college still a viable place to do that developing or is getting out on the tour and, and, you know, having the -the on-the-job training what, what's your feeling on that? Um, I mean, again, like like a lot of the stuff I talk about, there's there's no right answer. And you know, when I talk about my path, I want to be really clear that it's not that I think that this is the right path for every kid to follow either. You know, every every kid mm-hmm. is different. Everyone's wired differently. Um, you know, when when kids ask me, I've, I've had a number of kids ask me now about you know turning pro or going to college and my opinion on it. Um, I think college is a great developmental tool. Um, but I also think if you feel like you're ready for, for, for professional tennis at that age, that can be great too. Um, I often say that the life on tour, especially at like the futures level is very, very tough. You know, you're playing in, in small towns for very little money. Um, the travel is hard. The conditions are just really, really difficult. If you're a player that your goal is to play professional tennis, and you think that you can get yourself through the futures level relatively quickly and into at least the challenger level and hopefully the ATP tour level, then yes, I think turning pro is, is probably the right decision. People like Jack Sock, people like Sam Query, of course, the Andy Roddicks and the Marty Fishes. For those guys, yes, I think turning pro is absolutely the right decision. Taylor Fritz was one. You know, He, he decided to turn pro and instantly is winning challengers and will probably be in the top 100 sometime this spring um you know now i've seen a lot of other kids try to turn pro because they think that they're going to make that jump end up getting stuck and bogged down in the futures you know hang around between three and five hundred in the world um and then end up sort of running out of money the usta stops helping them at some point and now they've lost all their college ability college eligibility and end up in a real real tricky situation when it comes you know when it comes to their tennis mm-hmm. so i think you need to just sort of assess where you're at, hopefully get an accurate idea of that. Um, In response to the, you know, the Americans in the second week of the slams, I think we're a couple of years away from that. 
um, this group of Fritz and TFO and Tommy Paul and Jared Donaldson and Noah Rubin and, you know, Kozlov and Mo and then Opelka. And I'm sure I'm forgetting more. There's so many good kids in that age group. Um, those kids are the real deal. I mean, I see them out on tour. I see them starting to get, you know, really legitimate pro wins. Um, and the fact that they're a group, I think it's going to do amazing things for them. It's not one kid getting all the attention from the USTA, one kid getting all the wild cards. This is going to be seven or eight kids who are fighting for, you know, a share of those wild cards or share of the attention. And also, looking at their friends next door and being like, oh, wait, you just want a challenger? You know, I, that means I can win a challenger. You know, Noah Rubin, you just beat someone in the top 20 in the Australian Open? Well, that means that I can beat someone in the top 20. You know, and those things really start to then elevate that whole group together. I think we're going to see a lot of that in the next year. That, that's exciting. I, I love hearing that because, you know, I've had the opportunity to – to talk to a lot of these kids and to interview their parents and to see them play. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, I mean, I'm, I'm cheering as as hard as anyone for them to make it. I just think it's really cool. And it's nice to hear somebody in your position support that. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I, no, it's good. I mean, you know, you hear it from the the PR spin machine. It's it's different hearing it from somebody that's actually out there in the trenches doing the same work, and uh, so that that holds a lot of value. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your experience as a volunteer assistant at Harvard, and and I didn't touch on that in my intro of you, but I know you've done some work with the Harvard men's team, and you're living in Cambridge now, I think, right? Yep. Yep. So what's that um, like? So that started, I actually just, I met my wife on an airplane um, probably about <laughs> seven, seven years ago now. Um, so I came back to Boston and she was living in Harvard Square and I needed to practice. I was staying at her place when we first started dating and um, I needed somewhere to practice. So I literally walked over to the building, um, walked into the middle of a practice, kind of pulled Dave and Andrew aside and said, hey, I'm dating this girl across the river, um, wondering if I could get a hit. I'm ranked about 20 in the world in doubles. You got a space for me. And they both said, you know, absolutely. Here's our, here's our top player. Why don't you go and have a hit? And it sort of all spiraled from there. You know, we, we became, Andrew and I became very close friends. Dave became a, you know, really close mentor of mine. Um, and uh, I think it was like maybe that spring or that summer that they, they asked me, I said, Hey, you know, you want, you always want guys for practice, you know, would you be interested in coming on board as a, as a volunteer assistant coach? And, you know, that way you can kind of use the facility freely. You can train with our guys. You can get a little feel for what coaching is all about. Um, and it was a great experience. I think I did it for maybe four years. It was a part of some really good teams, teams that got into the top 20. Um, I stepped away last year from that official title. Um, they had another guy, Tim Mayotte, who was in town looking to help out. I had also had a new son um, and was getting just crazy busy with the player council and my own tennis and trying to be a new dad. And it kind of was the right time for me to step away from the responsibility of trying to you know, actually coach some kids. Um, but I still do you know, all my training over there with the guys um, and, and help out any way possible. I think the the thing that I found that was most beneficial to me of the whole experience was, you know, first of all, kind of learning what it's like to be a coach. Dave and Andrew were so 
open about sharing you know the what it takes to you know have run the budget of a team or what you know what the travel schedule is like you know all the ins and outs of coaching but also for me to have a community to train in was was so valuable because when you're 32 years old and you come home from a long trip you know in Europe and you're and you're tired and you know you need to get out and get to work on your game, if it's just you, it's tough. You know, you have to really find a lot of intrinsic motivation for that. But for me, I was able just to head over to the Mer Center and jump into practice at two o'clock and blink my eyes. And, you know, I finished a two and a half hour hit and an hour gym session and did it with a bunch of kids who became close friends of mine. So it allowed me to really train harder than I probably would have if I was just on my own, um, just by being around such a, such a great group of kids. Well, and from a financial perspective, that had to be a huge bonus for you because, I mean, you you touched on this a, a few minutes ago, but being out on tour is really, really pricey. And we all know how Federer and Djokovic and Murray travel with their entourages, but somebody that's ranked outside the top 100 isn't traveling like that and isn't getting that kind of support. So for you to be able to come home and, and basically have a, a tennis academy <laughs> of top, top players at your disposal had to have been a tremendous find. Yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, in the city of Boston, there's not a lot of pro tennis really at all. I mean, you can find a few ex-players around the city. Um, and even the, the use of good tennis courts are hard to find. So um, Harvard is pretty much the, the, the premier facility, um, and it, it's where all the top kids are as well. So, I mean, for me to kind of jump into that community and for Dave and Andrew to welcome me with open arms was a really pretty awesome experience and, you know, one that I've really worked hard to maintain and be involved with. Can you talk a little bit about your work with the ATP Players Council and the issues that y'all are dealing with? I know there's all this stuff in the news right now about the betting and the doping. And, I mean, these issues tend to come up in cycles and then go away for a little bit and pop back up. And right now you're in the midst of it. So how do you handle that and stay focused on your own training and, and calendar for competition? So the the player council kind of came about just um, there was a player from Stanford, Jim Thomas was his name, and he came up to me when I was like my first or second year on the tour and said, you know, he wanted to nominate me for this position as a representative and um, just thought that I would be the right fit. I had a college degree and you know I was fairly well liked, he thought, and that I would be a good kind of fit to represent the doubles players on the on the council. Um, so when he nominated me, I, I, I took the position. There was like a big election every other year, which I happened to win. I was shocked that I even knew enough players on tour that would vote for me, but <laughs> funny enough, they, they did. Um, and I took it really seriously. Uh, I started on a brand new council. There was 10 new guys at the time, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic were three of the guys in the, of the 10. So for me, just even being in a room with those guys and trying to have a discussion about you know, where the tour is going was was pretty intimidating, but also really eye-opening and really insightful as to learning about, you know, the issues that those players go through and how different they are from my issues, but, you know, that, that, they're, that they're all very important to our sport. Um, after about six years, I think it was, on the council, Federer stepped down as, or 
sorry, Federer, no, sorry, Nadal left as the vice president and they needed to elect a new vice president. They decided that I would be a good fit because I was so different to Roger as the president, you know, that I understood a lot of the issues for more of the rank and file players. Elected me as the vice president. Two years later, Federer stepped down um, just because he became too busy. So I sort of slid into the presidency role, um, which has been great. It's been a, it's been an awesome experience. It keeps me incredibly busy on the road, um, meeting with all players, um, especially a lot of the top guys, because I feel like for me, I, I do understand the issues of the, the rank and file guys so well that I need to continuously be um, interacting with, you know, Djokovic, Burdich, Nishikori, you know, the, the young guys up and coming, um, Federer whenever he has time to understand, you know, what what exactly it is they're going through, what what we what we need to focus on um, on the tour. So it's been a it's been an awesome experience. I mean, our, our our biggest wins over the last few years have been sort of getting our prize money up a lot. Um, you know, most most players have nearly doubled um, their prize money in the last 10 years, which, which is, which is great. Um, some have doubled it even in the last five years for certain ranking positions. Um, and a lot of that money has been driven down to the lower ranked players, guys ranked around a hundred to even 200 in the world in singles. So trying to create a better living for those players has been a real priority. Um, we've, our pension has gone up 500% in the last five years, which is a huge increase. So, trying to make sure that players have some income coming in even when they leave the tour. Um, since a lot of them have missed out on, you know, a lot of the core years of their working life. So making sure that they're stable kind of when they step away from the tour, that's been a huge focus. Um, obviously at the Australian open, this whole article on Buzzfeed came out about tennis corruption and match fixing. And that, that wasn't good publicity for us, but, it is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that, you know, we've been talking about for years. This, we've, we've hired this thing called the Tennis Integrity Unit, which is an outside organization, you know, run by the ATP funds to, to help catch any players that are involved with these sort of things. Um, the fact is that there's a lot of betting on the sport of tennis, especially in Europe. Um, there's only two players on the court. So if you want to get someone to, you know, control the outcome of a match you only have to really get to one player it's a lot different than team sport so we are more susceptible to it um i know that players in years past have been approached by people um i like to think that the vast vast majority of them all you know shoot down those offers report them um but there there have been some reports and we have suspended a few players over the years who who have been involved in that and if this article helps us catch a few more players and, and remove them from the game then that's a good thing um mm -hmm. you know the integrity of our sport is is the most important thing and to me it's even more important than um the whole anti-doping issue because if people don't believe that they're going to watch genuine competition then you know what what you know we're no different than WWF wrestling so right. um, I, I, I think that this article will shine a light on what I think is a very few number of players. I think it's primarily at the lower levels. Um, but nonetheless, if, if, if they can help us find some of those people, then in the end, this will be good. The publicity isn't great now, but if it makes our sport better in the end, then that's okay. That's, that's a great approach. I like it. I, you know, we have, we deal with, 
these integrity issues throughout all levels of the game, right? Starting, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, with dealing with cheating and the 12s and how frustrating it was. And, you know, the integrity starts young. And the lack of integrity also can start young. And, and so the role of the parent, the role of the coach is to instill these values at an early age and, and hopefully as the player develops and matures, they hold on to those good values and take them into college, onto the pro tour, wherever life takes them, right? So I, it's it's an interesting um, conversation to have as a professional player when we tennis parents have this conversation all the time around cheating. So it's... Yeah. it's the conversations don't it, change all it, that much. It, it, no, and it even becomes more complicated at my level because, I mean, you're talking about other tennis parents who are basically from your community, and I'm dealing with players from different tax brackets, you know, making drastically different amounts of money, and then also from very different backgrounds, from different different upbringings, from different, you know, countries where, you know, activities like this might be more accepted. So mm-hmm. I, I need to try to, and this and this is all issues. This is not just the the match fixing scandal that we're dealing with, but this is any issue, and that's you know talking to certain players from some countries who really only care about money and how much prize money they're making week to week, and other players who care so much about the quality of their life on tour, and other players from different countries might care more about you know the the, the quality of the product and the and the overall tennis tournament and the or the swings or the you know there's there's so many different opinions of all these different players. And the biggest challenge I deal with week in and week out is trying to get them on the same page and kind of sort of into one similar vision. Sure. It's a microcosm of the United Nations around there, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're that's an ambassador true. for sure, for sure. I want to swing back to uh, the doubles piece of this because it's not often that I have the opportunity to talk to somebody who really has made their career on the doubles tour. And I think it's, you know, it's an important thing to address because as parents we are often torn about how much doubles our kids should be playing and, you know, there aren't, from USTA standpoint, there aren't a lot of opportunities to play doubles in a competitive environment. Um, and I think, you know, your whole thing that you talked about at the beginning about making sure there are more team events for these kids coming up maybe would play into creating more doubles opportunities. How important is it for these kids to be playing doubles as they come up through the junior ranks? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's value on, on so many different levels. I mean, for one, like I've been able to make a career out of it. So, you know, the, I support my family off playing doubles. So there's, there's that aspect, but you know, at the more basic level, yeah, it's, it's such a fun way to play the game of tennis because it's the only time you get to share the court with someone else. Um, so learning to do that at a really young age will be so beneficial for kids, um, the skill set, you know, that's that's needed in doubles is is really different to that of singles. And so I think when you see some of the guys who've who've thrived in doubles, like uh, Jack Sock has thrived in doubles, and just now we're seeing him really shoot up the singles ranks. And I think we'll probably see him move, you know, close to the top ten this year in singles. And I think some of the reason that he'll you know take that next step is because his all court game has developed so much more because he's played so much doubles at a high level. 
So mm-hmm. I think there's a, there, there, there's, there's a lot of really great components to it. Um, I mean, I, I was lucky enough just to be around my dad when I had a young age who played a lot of doubles and he had like a, like a, um, a Sunday men's group of doubles that I used to go and hang out at when I was younger. And if they were an odd number, I would jump in and play. And of course, if you play with a bunch of, you know, 35 or 40 year old men, you have to play doubles their way, which was serving and volleying and understanding how to learn how to poach and, you know, use signals. And so at a young age, I was sort of forced into understanding a pretty high level of doubles. And so I think that kept me kind of one step ahead of the rest of the kids kind of all throughout my career. That's cool. That's cool. And I, I mean, obviously in college you played doubles, you won the NCAAs as a doubles player and as a singles player. Are, do you feel like the, the double skills that you learned playing against your dad's group translated to the college play and then professional play, or, or did you have to learn a different way of attacking the game? Um, I think specifically to me, they actually did translate a lot. I mean, I'm a tall left-handed player, so I was a player who was looking to come to the net a lot, even in singles. Um, but you know, I, I go around and do a lot of doubles talks for, for different coaching conventions. And one of the things I always say too, is that there's no one way to play doubles anymore. You know, if you, if you're teaching someone like me how to play, yeah, you're going to want them to come to the net at all costs, you know, move forward, get close to the net. But as you see, if you watch the modern pro doubles, there's players who serve and stay back. Now, a lot of teams play two back, you know, there's players that are, you know, learning to play doubles at the highest of levels in a, in a totally different fashion. So I think it's just an interesting game because when you have two people on the court, you now have two skill sets to work with. So you can build different strategies or different plays when it comes to covering, you know, different areas of the court or what shots you want to use. And you can get even more creative as to what you want to do to, to, to make a team work. Uh, it's one of the fun things that I think when I get to work with the Harvard tennis team is, you know, helping pair two guys together and say, okay, how are we going to hold this guy's serve? All right, well, his serve is not very good. He needs some help. All right, we need to pair him with a guy who's really good at the net who can help him get through his service games. Or this guy has a great serve. All right, well, let's find some, someone for him who, who maybe isn't great at the net because he doesn't need any help holding a serve. He can do it on his own. But we need to get him some help on the return. We need to get him with a guy who makes every return because his return is not that steady. You know, kind of through that whole puzzle process as to how to put partners together or how to take a team that's already established and how they can win more points. That's kind of what I enjoy so much about the game. When you were in the juniors, did you have a doubles partner that you stuck with year in and year out, or did you play with a bunch of different guys? Um, I had a couple different partners. I think when I was real young, I had one guy I played a lot with. Um, When I played, when I got to high school level, um, there was another, a different guy, one of the other top players from my state. The two of us played together. That guy actually became my doubles partner in college at Gustavus. He's the guy that I won, um, the national championship with. So he was probably the guy that I spent the most time with, um, through my juniors. And, you know, we had a lot of fun trying to, trying to figure out how we were going to win. You know, I was a left-handed serving volleyer and he was a right-handed player who was incredibly steady from the back. And so we had really different skill sets, but, we had a lot of fun trying to put those two together to, to become a great team. 
what advice would you give to kids that are playing junior tournaments and are trying to figure out how to choose a doubles partner? I mean, other than the obvious stuff you've already mentioned, you know, about finding somebody that complements your playing style, what about playing personalities? And, you know, I, I know with my own son, you know, he's had challenges with, like having to be the cheerleader on the court, you know, and, mm-hmm. and kind of relishing that role of being the cheerleader versus the one that's kind of self-deprecating and beating mm-hmm. themselves up when they miss. And so what advice would you share? Um, I mean, well, obviously, you know, getting along, you, know, you don't have to be best friends, but you want to get along at some decent level, um, you know, to to have a good, successful kind of, you know, relationship on the court. Um I think then it kind of comes down to the psychology of, of, you know, and obviously this is a little harder for, you know, younger kids to understand is, all right, I really want to win this match. You know, how can I make my partner play better? You know, what does he need from me and what do I need to tell him that I need? You know, so, so for me, um, you know, my, my confidence is a lot lower than maybe a lot of players on tour. So I do need a partner who helps build me up and makes me feel good about myself. Um, on the other hand, when I'm dealing with, you know, partners that I played with, I need to try to get into their personalities and kind of understand what is it that you need from me? Do you need me to, you know, also pick you up? Do you need me to kind of shake you and wake you up if you're you know, not alert enough? Do you need me to yell at you? Are you one of those kids who wants to be screamed at to kind of get woken up? Um, you know, but what is it that I can do you know, to, to make you play the best tennis and give us the, the best chance to win. Um, whenever I coach teams, I try to set a couple of ground rules. You know, like one is you have to high-five or, you know, touch hands in between every single point. And sometimes people will fight me on that and say, you know, oh, I, we don't have to do that. It becomes too excessive, you know, whatever. I always say that the most important thing in doubles is communicating with your partner. After every point, you need to be able to talk about some basic strategy techniques, whether it's I'm going to serve up the tee and I want you to cross, as specific as calling a play, um, giving someone an idea of where you might return. I'm thinking about hitting a lob here or you know, hitting one down the line um, or just encouraging each other. You need to be able to communicate. So if you set a basic rule of, you know, we're going to touch hands or high five in between every single point, that brings you together every single point, win or lose, no matter how you're feeling, you're always going to become close. And then if you're close enough, the odds are you're going to exchange a couple of words of communication. So that's always kind of like my ground rule. Number one, taking it a step further. The one that I I love that I picked up from a doubles coach probably about 10 years ago is the idea of rescuing. And whenever a part, whenever a player on a doubles team makes a mistake, it's the responsibility of the other player to actually cross the middle line and go over and give that player a high five because the person who just made the mistake isn't going to be the one who comes running and, you know, running the high five. So it's actually, it's actually the responsibility. And he held us very accountable at least for like a year, you know, with this rule and would get really upset if we didn't follow it, um, that you have to go and rescue your partner when they play badly. Cause you've probably seen those teams and you can imagine it where one guy's at the net and the other guy's returning, kind of away from the bench and he'll miss the return to end the game and the partner just sort of jogs off without them just leaves the guy who missed the shot hanging out there on an island and you can just see how you know little little things like that can divide just divide a team so setting up that idea of rescuing is just a huge sort of 
bridge builder between two players and helps you play better in the end. I love that. Well, we are down to our last minute. Sadly, this hour went so fast, but I just <laughs> want to thank you again and and encourage my readers. I'm going to be posting another great article that Eric recently wrote for the UTR website, um, of course, with their permission, um, about his experience with his dad and coming up through the juniors. And so I, I hope you guys will check out the site this afternoon and read that and share it because it's an important piece. Eric, I, I'm going to Keep an eye on you and your tennis dad role. Um, I, I suspect your son's already got tennis balls and tennis rackets hanging around his room, but um, it'll be fun to watch you and, and see where things go, both as, as the player council president, as a top doubles player, and now as a tennis parent, hopefully. So congratulations <laughs> and thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I hope people are enjoying reading the stories. I, I plan to hopefully get another maybe 20 or 30 stories out this year. I've got some, some fun stuff about interacting with the top players as well as a lot of my experiences from growing up. And it's just um, not that it's, it's the path that everyone should follow, but I think it's one that's not really talked about that much. So it's been really exciting for me to share that through the, the UTR website, but um, I appreciate you having me on and, and um, hope people enjoy the conversation and, and yeah, keep playing tennis and keep having fun out there. Perfect. Thanks so much. To my listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, visit us online at parentingaces.com. As always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, TennisBalls.com.